think is going to be really good. I'm excited about. Uh, of course, I think they're all good. Uh, my family, not so much. Uh, but uh, today I want us to talk about uh, kind of a, the introduction to getting back to the basics of our faith. Uh, we're going to be in this probably next five or six weeks as we begin to look back at the, uh, the fundamentals of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the basics of what Christians believe. And not just what we believe, but even more importantly, why we believe that. Uh, and, and why they are important to our faith. And you may be here today, and you may have been a, a Christian for a really long time. And you're like, you know, what's the point? I've, I've got this. I'm saved. I'm good. I know the fundamentals of being a Christian, you know, and, and you've got the basics down. Well, I just want to encourage you to continue to come with an open mind, an open heart, uh, open notepad, uh, taking notes on this. Because, you know, even though you may have it and you may have the basics down, uh, it's still important because... As Christians, we've been called to make disciples. Making disciples means teaching these fundamentals and sharing these fundamentals and these basic ideas with other people. And so maybe you would consider and think about while we go through this series, could I teach somebody this? You know, I, I encourage people all the time, you ought to be able to share your faith in the amount of time that it takes to ride an elevator from the top to the bottom floor at the hospital. I mean, you ought to be able to share it quickly, concisely, and clearly so that someone who knows nothing about your faith, uh, you could be able to explain it to them and share with them the basics and the fundamentals of your faith. And if you can't, I challenge you as we go through this series, this would be a great opportunity for you to learn and to begin to refine that and uh, be able to do that as we go through this series. Uh, and, and not only that, it's always good to be reminded of the fundamentals and the basics of our faith. Uh, I shared last week, and those of you that know me, you know I'm a big sports guy. I played, you know, sports when I was young. Uh, I'm paying for it now. I stand, I stand before you today a guy that just hurts from, from head to toe, uh, and it's because I played hard, folks. I played to win. You know, those, those people that, that, you know, today get a trophy for just participating, back in my day, we only got them when you won, and so I was all about it. But uh, in sports, when, when I played, the coaches would continually, uh, and it almost would just drive you crazy, but they would continually make us work on and practice the fundamentals of the game. You know, uh, it, it was something that we never got away from. Uh, one of the greatest, I, I love this story, one of the greatest football coaches to ever coach the game of football was a guy by the name of Vince Lombardi. And every year, at the first practice, when the team would get back together for their first time of the year, returning back from their break, they would all gather together. And this great coach, Vince Lombardi, would stand before his team with the football in his hand, and he would say this, Gentlemen, this is a football. And what he was doing was he was standing before, you know, uh, all these accomplished athletes who knew what a football was. I mean, good grief, they'd been playing it all their life. They knew the fundamentals, they knew the basics, but he took them deeper into the basics and reviewed them with them on a regular basis, and he made them into great people by doing that. 
great athletes and great teammates. And, and the more they dug into the basics, the greater they, be, they became. Now, over the last few weeks, those of you that have been here, you also know we've been talking about, in this last series, we've been talking about digging wells. Did you know that? We, uh, did, did you catch the fact that we alluded to almost in every message about digging wells? You know, those who drink the water must appreciate those who dug the well, right? Can I tell you a little story? Last night we had some company over and we're talking about, Hunter's talking about these shirts that we have made from time to time that, you know, we ask y'all to buy. Uh, we're basically uh, uh, giving you something really nice to wear. You look cool uh, in it, but you're also uh, a billboard for our church. So be careful when you're wearing a church t-shirt, how you act, what you say, what you do. Um, but anyway, we're talking about the shirts, and I said, you know, I've, I've been pushing them. You know, the theme kind of throughout every message that last series was about digging the well. And I said, you know, it'd be really cool if we had, one, had a T-shirt made up. And I said, I think people, people would love this, but it'd be Greenbrier Church of the Nazarene, and then maybe on the back or something, it would say well diggers. Well, that went into a whole different conversation. And so we're talking about being well diggers, and we're joking about it. And it's me and, me and Dan and, and, and his wife, Tiffany, and we're talking about being well. And, and Lynette looks over at me, and she was like she always does. She always looks at me like, you're the dumbest human being I've ever been around in my life. But yet she chose me. <laughs> so I, I don't know what that says about her, but she was like, why would you do that? What's, what's the deal with well diggers? And I'm like, have you been in church the last six weeks? Because we've been talking about that. And she said, I, I guess I missed that. Did y'all miss that we were talking about digging wells in that last series? Because my wife obviously was asleep. But, but anyway, so we've been talking about digging wells. And, you know, here's the deal. The water is not found by digging wider. Right? Did y'all know that? And y'all got a well? Is it, is it important that your well is wider or that the well is deeper, right? you got to dig deeper to get to the water. Dig deeper. And so that's what we're going to do as we look at the basics and the fundamentals of our faith is we're going to dig a little deeper into that well. And, and so the first thing that we're going to look at is the most important, the ultimate uh, fundamental of our faith in being a follower of Jesus Christ and that's salvation. Okay, so we're going to talk about salvation today. What is salvation, and how can you know for sure that you have it? Because I think, no, I don't think I know that is very important. Right? Over the years, I've talked to a lot of people that will admit to me they struggle with knowing from time to time whether they're saved or not. You know, I, I get that. Shoot, I'm, I'm your preacher, and I still freak out when I can't find Lynette because I think the rapture has happened. Uh, you know, I'm calling, I'm texting, and she does it sometimes just as a trick, you know. Uh, she joked about one time she thought she was just going to take her clothes and lay them out in the bed there like that's where she was, and then, you know, she's me. In fact, I'm not sure she's going to make the rapture, to be honest with you. She don't, she don't listen to my sermons, and she's evil. So, but, yeah, yeah, well, Valentine's is coming. Speaking of Valentine's, yeah, squirrel, exactly. Thanks, Mike. 
the women's thing that Hunter was talking about, the women's uh, ministry is having a Valentine's something for the women. I'm not even sure what it is or what they're going to do. They initially planned that for women in our church that were uh, widowed or women in our church who weren't married and just wanted to have something for the women to be able to participate in in Valentine's Day. Well, they, they've kind of caught some flack about that, so now they've opened it up to all women because some women have said, you know, my husband does absolutely nothing for me on Valentine's Day, and so if y'all are having something, could I come just so I could have something Valentine? And so, ladies, if that's you and your husband is that sorry of a man, then you're invited. You're invited to come, you know. And maybe if you'll just walk out the door and say, hey, since you, you know, you're not willing to make me your Valentine, I'm going to church where they will. And, and maybe by the time you get back, he will have wisened up and went and got you something nice for Valentine's Day. But you're all invited. Men, get that right. Good grief. What are we preaching about this morning? Classes for those men. That's a good idea. At this, and have a steak with that. How about that? i got to move on. But anyway, I do have people from time to time that say, you know what? Am I saved? Am I not saved? I don't know. You know, a lot of people are trying to nail that down, wonder about it, curious about it, you know. Uh, and, and I get it. You know, like I said, I get it because, you know, as a kid, I can remember as a kid being raised in that little free will Baptist church, I went to the altar every other Sunday and got saved, <laughs> right? I mean, that screech, preacher, screecher, that's a good name for him. He was a screecher that screamed and preached, screecher. And he'd scare the out of you and you just want to go to the altar because you I mean you could smell the smoke of hell while he was preaching and so I would go and like Lord please save me I I, I should probably be in the Guinness Book of World Records because I've been saved 5,000 times and uh, been saved at every youth camp I've ever been to uh, and so I, I get it but my hope today is is this is that you would know for sure what salvation is and you would know for sure before you leave today that you're saved, right? That's the point, uh, because that's the most important thing in your entire life that you have nailed, have, need to have nailed down, right? That's the most important question you need to ask is, am I saved? And, and know that without a doubt. Now, here in our text this morning, we're going to look at the story of a religious man by the name of Nicodemus today, uh, and he has come to talk to Jesus about this very thing, about salvation. And so, uh, let's begin. I actually want to pick it up here in chapter 2 this morning, starting at verse 23, because it really sets the scene for the story of Nicodemus. So John chapter 2, starting at verse 23, says this. Now many people saw the signs he was performing, talking about Jesus here. They saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And so, in other words, Jesus knew that even though they said they believed, and they were really religious, all right? He's talking to this really religious group of people. He knew that their faith and what they said they believed was just simply words. And it was very superficial. And you might say that they believed Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe them. He didn't see evidence of their faith and evidence in their lives of what they said they believed. 
All right? He knew that their love and their commitment was very shallow, and it didn't go very deep. And so, uh, in, in light of that, thinking about where we are today, 2,000 years ago in America, thinking about those people, and then thinking about where we're at today, statistics, and, and they're all over the place, but for the most part, about two-thirds of people who are Americans would say that they believe in God. They would even say that they have a relationship with God. 50% of those people would say that at some point in time they had prayed a prayer to be saved and asked Jesus to save them. Even though half of those people that would say that they have prayed a prayer have no regular presence in any kind of church. Okay? And two-thirds of those people as well who would say that they have prayed a prayer to be saved have lifestyles and worldviews today that are much different than those, I mean, that are very similar than those who don't call themselves Christians at all. You really can't tell a difference in what they believe by how they live their lives. Don't miss this. This is the group of people that Jesus is talking to right here in this passage. It's those people, okay? They say they believe. They do some religious stuff. They, they check a few of the boxes for fire insurance in their life, but they're not really committed to Jesus. They're a mile wide and an inch deep. This is the, peop- this the, is the congregation that Jesus has before him as he's sharing this story here. And Nicodemus' story is Jesus' answer, his response to that group of people. Right. So now let's pick it up at chapter 1 and verse 3. And it's an unfortunate place for a chapter break there because basically this is just a continuation of what he was just saying. Verse 1 says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So don't miss this. Nicodemus was one of the guys that chapter 2 is referring to that has seen the signs and wonders that uh, Jesus was performing and believed that, yes, There was something special about him, and he must be of God. Verse 3, Jesus replied to him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then he goes on, you read on, you can see that this confused Nicodemus, because he's thinking that Jesus is telling him that somehow he needs to go through this physical rebirth. Right? And he's not getting it. You know, he thinks Jesus is telling him that he somehow needs to go back into his mama's belly. And so, you know, basically he says in verse 4, you know, number one, that is not physically possible. And number two, that would be terribly awkward uh, if I were to try that. But Jesus answered him in verse 5. Look at what he says again. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you. And by, by the way, Jesus doesn't say things that are untrue. All right, just so you know. You know, so very truly here when he starts this way doesn't mean, okay, so now this time I'm, I'm really going to tell you the truth. 
right? That's, that's not what he's saying. Instead, it's kind of like when I say, uh, don't miss this when I'm preaching. And evidently, I say that a lot. Uh, uh, people ha- have told me that. But very truly, or different translations, some will say truly, truly. Other translations will say verily, verily. Folks, it, it, it simply means this. Pay attention. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Uh, Jesus today, if he were standing before you sharing this story, here's how he would say this. Don't miss this. <laughs> Don't miss this. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And so that brings us to the question today. Why must I be born again, and what does that mean? Why must I be born again, and and what does that mean to be born again? Okay, so think about it. So if Jesus is saying here that we need a new birth, if we need a new birth, if we need to be born again, then that must mean that there was something wrong with our first birth, right? I mean, isn't that logical? If we need a new birth, if we need to be born again, there must be something wrong with our first birth. And there is, because according to the Bible, we are born into a state of spiritual death. We're born that way because of the sin of the human race, we're born into this spiritually dead state. God said in the book of Genesis, the one who sins will surely die. And when we sinned, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what took place. Adam and Eve sinned, right? They were driven out, and because of their sin, because of their disobedience, what happened? They were driven out of God's presence. They were separated from God. Folks, that's what sin does. It separates us from our God. They were driven out of His presence. And at that that point, our bodies, which, don't miss this, our bodies, which were made to be eternal, began to die. Our bodies, which were made and created to be eternal, began to die. It's like our hearts got sick. It was like we began to get heart disease, right, at, at that time. And, and what happens is when this, this took place is, is when your heart begins to die and, and it's, it's sick, the result of that is you begin to love things that you're not supposed to love. You see, when you get sick, you, you, you start loving what you shouldn't love And Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Which means, you know, when a heart's in that state, when it's dying, some of the, the results of that is we'll love God's creation and His gifts more than we'll love God. Right? And we focus on serving ourselves instead of serving God. Think about it like this. we got some people in here today uh, with new babies, with, with young children. And, man, I'm just having more all the time. I, I can't even keep up with it anymore. Not only can I not keep up with all the babies that are being born in the church, but I definitely can't keep up with names again. Uh, so I just call your kids, hey, dude, or hey, little girl. 
Um, but I'll get it. I'll get it. If y'all hang around, if y'all stick with us, I'll eventually figure out their name. Well, guys, a lot of people in our church with babies about to have new babies. Think about it like this today. You're here with your new baby. Find out there's somebody here in the church today that has the coronavirus, which is a very bad, I mean, it's very contagious, very bad. It's killing a lot of people. Right? But you found out there's somebody here today with coronavirus right here in our midst, and you're here with your new baby. What are you about to do? You're about to get out of here. huh? You're about to remove yourself from this situation, are you not? You don't want your baby to get sick. That baby is the most precious thing that you have to you, right? You want to protect that baby. Let's say, what if that person with the coronavirus came up to you and asked you to let you hold their baby? Would you, would you let them? Absolutely not. You'd be horrified that you were even in the, the same room with them by that because your baby is the most precious thing that you have in your life and your baby's health is very important to you. You can ask Daniel uh, Hillian, our youth pastor, when we hired him, we brought him in, started talking to him about what it meant to be a youth pastor. And I said, listen, when you have someone's kids in your care, and you have them, or you're taking them somewhere, or whatever it may be, you need to realize and understand that you have the most precious thing that they have in their family, in their lives, and in their home, and that's their children. And I think we would all say our children are the most precious things that we have. Some of you might say that about grandchildren. I know nothing about that. (laughs) But they're precious. And their health is very important to us. Folks, don't miss this. You are more precious to God than your baby could ever be to you. Now, I know we don't get that. We don't totally understand that. God loves you more than you could ever love your child. It's hard to imagine. And as as much as you don't want your child to be sick, God, even more than that, wants to keep you from being sick in your sin. You see that? told people time and time again, I never really, and I still don't fully understand the love of Jesus, but I understood it a little better when I had kids. Right? Some of you get that. You begin to understand the grace of God when you have kids. You begin to understand the patience of God when you have kids. And you understand the forgiveness of God when you have kids. God doesn't want us to be sick. God doesn't want us to die, right? He wants to keep you from being sick in your sin. Because here's the deal. There's not one thing that you can do about your sickness. There's not one thing that you can do that's going to heal your heart disease and cure you of this sickness of sin. Not one thing. But yet so many people are trying to. So many people are trying to to cover it up. Trying to cover it up with a a little bit of religion. Trying to cover it up with a little bit of church attendance. Trying to put this mask over it. Make it look good. Make it look religious. You know, as I was reading this and I was thinking about this, I I began to think about, and y'all probably don't have this this problem. Y'all probably a whole lot cleaner people than, than my family is. But I began to think about when the chicken has been in the trash too long. Anybody ever had that? You know, if my wife would take the trash out as often as she ought to take it out, we wouldn't have this problem. But then again, she tells me that's my job. So, 
But I mean, when you got that chicken in the trash, I mean, after just a little bit, that stuff's got to go, right? I mean, because it begins to smell up your, the whole house. And I don't care, you know, we buy those scented trash bags now. Still don't cover up that smell of that rotten chicken. You know, got all this bath and body and bed and bath. You know, we got all that. Won't cover up the smell of that rotten chicken. Counted the other day. We have 5,321 candles in our house. <laughs> we light them all. It ain't covering up the smell of that rotten chicken. What's got to happen? That chicken's got to be carried out for the smell to go away. You can't mask it. You can't cover it up. Then our sickness of sin can't be changed or masked with our own willpower or our own uh, recipe. Can't be covered up with religion. You know, sin killed us. And there's nothing we can do about that. On our own. We needed something more. Can I just tell you this morning? You don't need more religion. And I'm going to offend somebody here today. But you know what else we don't need? We don't need more old time religion. Religion is not what we need. We don't need more religion. You don't need more rules. You don't need more resolutions. You don't need a necktie. You don't need all these things. You don't need more willpower. Jesus says you need a new heart is what you need. You don't need your rules. You don't need this book or that book. You need a new heart. You need to be born again. That is what is required of us. God doesn't want you to just change your behavior. It's not what he's after. He's not after changing your behavior. He wants to change your desires, and you change your desires by getting a new heart, a new healthy heart, and you get that by being born again, right? And don't miss this. It's not pleasing to God if you obey him just because you feel like you have to, right? That's a lot of work anyway. A lot of people are frustrated in the church because they feel like they're having to do things they have to do. Oh, I have to go. I have to tithe. I have to do this. They ask us to do that. I have to do that. If you're doing anything because you have to, hello? God's not wanting you to act a certain way because you feel like you have to. God didn't create you because he wanted some puppets that would do what he wants them to do when he pulls the right string. That's not what it's about. We must be born again, given a new life, given these new desires, this new heart that loves him. Jesus is crystal clear about it, folks. You must be born again. So that brings us to the next question. All right? If that's the point, and that's what has to take place, how... Can you be born again? How does that happen? Well, down a little further, Jesus says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now again, Jesus is talking to uh, these religious leaders here who would have been very proud and very boastful of the amount of Scripture that they would know. And have memorized from the Old Testament. It's what they had. 
And so Jesus is referring, referencing here an Old Testament story that they would have been very familiar with, you know. Uh, and in the Old Testament story, the people of Israel were headed to the promised land, right? But they didn't like God's timing on it. That They didn't like the fact that, you know, God was making them wait and all these things were going on. They began to grow impatient with God, you know. Uh, they were beginning to turn to other things besides God. They were beginning to turn even to other gods. And so God knew he had to get their attention. Folks, let me just tell you something. When you're walking in disobedience to God and you're putting other things before God and maybe even dabbling in some of these other what we call little g-gods in your life, and you're serving and worshiping these things, can I just tell you, time and time we see throughout Scripture that when God's people get to that, gets to that point, He will get their attention. He will get your attention. One way or the, the other. Because why? Because He sees you as a precious child that He doesn't want to be sick in their sin. And so He's doing whatever it, it takes. And so... You know, they, they were being disobedient. They were totally out of God's will. And so in this particular instance, God sends these fiery serpents into their camp, thousands of them, and they begin to bite the people. And the people begin to cry out in pain, cry out in their suffering, cry out for God to, to help them uh, through this. And so God told Moses to make a bronze uh, image of one of the serpents, is make a, make a bronze image of one of these snakes. I want you to put it on top of a pole, and I want you to put it on the top of a hill so that anyone could see it that, that wants to see it. And then God told the people, if you will look to that, if you will look to that serpent on that pole up there on the hill, if you'll look to that believing, you will be healed. If you believe that it will heal you, you look to that, you will be healed. And so just as Moses lifted up the snake on that hill in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Jesus would be lifted up like the serpent on a hill. Jesus would be lifted up on a pole, on that hill. You know, you see in this story here that Jesus is retelling of what happened uh, to the Israelites. You see, the serpent was the result of their sin. Okay? Death was the result of our sin. And God made him who knew no sin, who was as pure as as heaven's glory, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God. He made Him to do what? Become sin for us. To become our sin. And don't miss this. If we look at Him dying there on that hillside, if we look at Him there lifted up on that pole, on the cross of Calvary, dying there in our place and believe that He was there for us. If we look to Him in faith, we will be healed just like they were. Born again, 
out of this curse of death into the promise of new life and new heart. And then a verse that some of you may not be very familiar with at all, verse 16. We all know it. We all know it well. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Folks, this right here is the clearest explanation of the gospel. God looked down from heaven. He saw His precious children suffering with this terrible sickness, and he could not stand to leave us to die. And so he came to earth, and we killed him. We didn't realize he was paying our penalty. We didn't realize that he was paying our price. We didn't realize that if we would just believe and look to him, that we'd be saved. And when Jesus says here, believe, don't miss this, folks. He's not talking about just believing the story. He's not just talking here about believing the facts as we know them. The Bible says, the Bible says that even demons believe. Did you ever catch that? The Bible says that even demons believe and they tremble. You see, even demons believe that Jesus is God. Even demons believe that He rose from the dead. Do you believe this morning? Well, if you do, that's good. But you're on par with the demons. Right? The difference between the demonic faith and a saving faith is this. Have you cried out to Him in desperation? Knowing how sick you are, how miserable you are, and that the sin in your life is going to kill you and destroy you. Not just here on this earth, but for forever, for eternity. Have you looked to Him in desperation? Have you fully surrendered your will, your plan, and your way to Him for your new birth and for His healing in your life of that sin, that disease that is separating you from your Father and from God? Folks, I'm going to tell you this morning, there's a lot of preachers that will stand before you and put emphasis on you praying a prayer. All right. Yeah, it's important that we pray a prayer of repentance. All right, It's not just praying a prayer that equals to what Jesus is talking about here. That equals to this kind of faith and this kind of belief in who He is. We're talking about a cry from your heart. Realizing that what He did on that cross of Calvary, He did that for you. And it's your only hope. It's the only hope that you have for the disease that is killing you. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher back in the 1800s. You may or may not be a fan. I don't know. Some of Spurgeon's stuff's pretty good, but 
he was effective, I know that. But anyway, he would share often when he would preach. He would preach about his salvation experience. And he would tell it with others. And there's several different versions that, you know, he, he shared. But I, I just want to read it to you this morning. I think it's powerful. On a snowy morning on January 6, 1850, at 15 years old, Charles Spurgeon was trudging up Hythe Hill in Colchester on his way to church. When the blizzard prevented him from going further, he turned the corner and made his way into a small primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. He says this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further and make it to the place I intended, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen people, maybe 15. The minister wasn't there that morning. I assumed that he was probably snowed in. A poor man. He appeared to be a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to share. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had nothing else to say. The text was out of Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 22. It says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved. Look unto me, and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce all the words right that he was reading, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. And then he said this. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or lifting your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man not, need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. Ah, he said, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourself. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. He said, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I Ascend. I am sitting at the right hand of the Father. Oh, look to me. Look to me. When he had got about that far along and managed to spit out about ten minutes worth, he was at the length of his message. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew I was a stranger there. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. 
but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, And you will always be miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey this text. But if you know, if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Christ. Look. Look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and they were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things for God to earn his approval. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had been rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had just told me this before. Trust Christ and look to Him and you will be saved. Yet it was no doubt all in God's good time. And now I can say, ever since, by faith, I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Friends, the most important question of the day is this. Are you born again? Are you born again? Nicodemus was presented here a choice by Jesus. A choice that, that he had to make. He, he wasn't, Nicodemus wasn't just born into it. He wasn't a Christian because his family were Christians. He had to choose personally to be born again. He had to look. He had to look in faith and believe. And it wasn't just enough to be religious. He was already religious. He was very religious. Often I ask people from time to time, I'm going to have to quit sharing with you all things that people tell me that just make me go, really? A lot of times when I'm talking to somebody and the conversation comes around to whether they're a Christian or not, and I say, you know, are you saved? Have you accepted Christ? It's amazing to me the number of times they'll tell me where do they go to church. I'll say, are you saved? Well, I go to church over here. You know, my membership is... Uh, uh, you want to tell me about the boxes they've checked? They want to tell me about where they go to church. Folks, that's all well and good. And we've been talking about the importance of the church in the body of Christ. It is the church. 
Going to church is not enough. Going to church is not enough. Jesus said, you must be born again. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to Krispy Kreme makes you a cop. The question this morning is this. Have you fully surrendered yourself to to the Lord? Have you fully surrendered yourself to Christ as Jesus and Lord of your life? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me today. and I want to ask you, nobody's looking around. I believe it will be negligent homicide for me not to ask you this question this morning. Are you born again? Have you been born again? Have you fully leaned onto Him for your Savior? To be your Savior of your sins and this life-threatening disease that's destroying your heart and destroying your life. Have you been born again? Because this morning, I'm going to tell you, you have no more excuses. God brought you here today so that you would hear this message and be confronted with this question. You know what it means to be saved, and you know how it happens. And so, like Nicodemus today, you're faced with a question that you have to answer. You're being faced with a choice that you have to make. So if you've never done that, if you've never been born again, if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you want to do that today, it's the biggest decision that you will ever make in your life, and I invite you to make that decision today. And some of you need to do that. And if you'd make that choice today, that you want to be born again, and you want to surrender your life to Christ you know you need that healing in your life. I'm going to ask you this morning, just simply as an act of an obedience, it's not going to save you. It's not going to help you. But I'm just going to ask you this morning, as an act of obedience, to answering that question, yes, I want to be saved. I want to be born again. I want to ask you to lift your hand this morning and hold it high. Just for a moment. If that's you today. I see that hand. Are there any others? This morning, you know that's you. This morning, you would just lift that hand and say, I'm not going to embarrass you. I, I just want to know and celebrate with you what's happening in your life, and then I want to pray for you. Are there anyone else? Anyone else that would raise their hand and say, you've been talking to me all morning? morning before we close one last thing when you when you trust Christ you're supposed to show that through baptism it's public declaration some of you have never done that some of you have made the decision just this morning to accept Christ and so this is your next step is to be baptized if you've accepted him some of you have trusted in the Lord as your Savior years ago in the past, maybe years and years ago, a long time ago, but you've never declared that through public baptism.
baptism. Listen, it's a command of Jesus. It, it just is. It, it, it doesn't save you, but it's a public declaration of this decision that you've made. That yes, you acknowledge you were dead. But through Christ, you were resurrected. You were raised up with a new life, born again. You know, I've had people tell me before, Steve, I was baptized as an infant. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think your, your parents should be commended for caring about you enough to want to take that step of faith in their own lives to commit you to Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. But can I just ask you this morning, if you were baptized as an infant, was that your choice or was that somebody else's choice? Because baptism is a symbol of your faith. It's a symbol of your faith. Every baptism that we see in the Bible, they believed first and then they were baptized. And so if you need to be baptized, I want you to get with me and let's get it scheduled. And let's celebrate with that, that with you and your church family. This morning we're going to have a baptism at the end of this service and celebrate with a young man that has made this choice and made this decision and he wants to celebrate that with his church family today. But before we do that, I want us to just close with a time of prayer, contemplation. God, this morning, it, it, it's crystal clear what your message is to your people today. It's crystal clear what your message is to those who have never accepted you today. And God, I pray for the one that's here that was brought to a point of decision. I'm thankful for the one that lifted her hand and said that she'd cried out to you for the salvation of her soul and to be born again. And I know your word says that when that happens, that all of heaven rejoices. And so as the church, we rejoice with the angels of heaven today that one has been born again, given a new heart, been saved from their sin and the disease that kills. But God, I also know there are probably some people here today that you were speaking to their hearts and they said, I'm not making that decision today. I'll do it another time. Well, by not making the decision, they actually made a decision today. So, God, I pray that you continue to draw them. I pray that you continue to convict, speak to their heart. Help them to...